So in the talk this evening, I'd like to speak a little bit about intention. And before, before I actually speak about intention, I'd like to um, just speak um, with the intention of being very brief. Uh, <laughs> just, just briefly um, about, I'd like, I'd like to speak about the, the basics of the Buddha's teaching. And I know a number of you are quite familiar with this, uh, but um, I think a number of you perhaps aren't so familiar with the, the basic teachings. And I'd like to discuss this just briefly, um, very briefly, um, primarily to, to try and give a context for intention in the practice, in terms of the meditation practice. And when I speak of the meditation practice in the context of this retreat, I include the, the Qigong. And also to give, um, perhaps, um, a context for the practice in general, a, practice, uh, uh, a context for the meditation practice in general. Why do it? Why put ourselves through this? <laughs> And, and uh, why, why put ourselves through it, and why are we doing it? So this gives a context for the intention and for the actual practice. So the, the Buddha, again, as many of you are familiar with, the Buddha was raised as a prince in a, a royal family, in a, a small, um, they call it a kingdom, and I don't know if that's actually what it was. But anyway, his father was kind of in charge of this district, whatever it was. And, and the Buddha was raised as the prince to be the heir to the throne. And the, the text describes his upbringing as having just every conceivable luxury that was known at the time, with the finest clothing and the finest food and, and the finest musicians. And he had a palace for a different palace for each season, and, and he says even um, even the servants in his in his palaces wore the finest clothes, and uh, which was just unheard of. But that would be the extent of the, the luxury that he grew up with, and and the Buddha came to a point in his life where he recognized that even with all this luxury. Even with growing up and being raised and living with, with all the, the material things that he could wish for and with all the, the care and attention that he could ever wish for from other people, just being waited on and being given whatever he wanted, still he recognized that within his being there was uh, a, an inner dissatisfaction, an inner dis-ease an inner um, discomfort with life as it was. And, and, the, and the Buddha, recognizing this, set out with the intention of seeing if there was a way of life, if it was possible to actually live in this life free of this, this ease this discomfort, to be truly free 
in other words, to be truly at peace with life as it is. And, and perhaps um, if, we, if we each were to look at our own intentions in being on this retreat, I'm sure if I went around and asked all, I mean, there's probably 45 to 50 people in this room, if I asked everyone, I'd probably get at least 40 <laughs> different responses. But I think if we took all the different responses and kind of distilled them all down, I would guess that probably the probably almost all of them, if not all of them, would come down to a similar situation for each one of us coming on this retreat, coming to meditation. A recognition of, of something in our lives that just doesn't sit right, that we just aren't at peace with. Just aren't kind of at home with or at rest with. And, and an intention to change that. And it's interesting that the, the Buddha, the Buddha, I think, didn't put the emphasis so much on intention to change that, but rather intention to discover if there was a way that could be free of that. And so I think there is that similarity that we, we've come here to a large extent. Occasionally, occasionally someone comes on a retreat just purely out of curiosity. <laughs> just totally out of curiosity with no kind of agenda and no expectations and no looking for anything special. It's wonderful when a person comes like that. <laughs> Often those people that discover the most. <laughs> But we come, so we we come with a, a little bit of an agenda, as, as the Buddha had, um, wanting to find a way of of being free of this this disease. And and so the Buddha set out with this intention, and he spent six years doing meditation practice. You know, he spent almost 24 hours. <laughs> so the Buddha spent six years doing very intensive practice uh, in all different, all the different traditions that were in fashion at the time, and with different teachers, and practicing on his own, and with friends, and under all kinds of different conditions. And, um, and he, he came to some realizations, some insights, some understanding, which he declared truly freed him. Truly freed him completely. He, he uses the word utterly, utterly free. Completely freed him from um, the word. The word used in the in in the language that the Buddha's discourses were originally written down, and in the language that the Buddha may have spoken. Is called Pali, and and he spoke in, in in the Pali language of dukkha, of being completely free of dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, which is generally translated as suffering. It's also translated as dissatisfaction, or unsatisfactoriness. It's also translated as more more contemporarily as stress. <laughs> And, and so the Buddha came to some, some insight, some understanding of, of the very nature of life, the very nature of, of the sense of self. 
partake of who he was, which which he declared freed him from that. And and he summed up his insights in what he referred to as the four noble truths. And he summed up his insights in in four into four statements. And the first the first of these statements is very simply and I think rather obviously the, the fact that that in our lives we experience dukkha. And, and I think this is a rather significant statement, perhaps more significant than, than we may be aware of at first. Um, certainly, I would guess that most of us, almost all of us, if not all of us, have some degree of realization of this of this statement, that in our lives we experience dukkha, we experience stress, we experience unsatisfaction, we experience suffering. But by, by making this the first of the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha is, is not just pointing out that we have it, I mean, that's obvious, everybody knows that, but he's, he's, he's saying, give attention to it. It's significant. It's, it's, it's important that we recognize that. And, and he said that uh, in, in a couple of, couple of his discourses, he said the reason it's important is because by recognizing it, then we want to end it. If we don't recognize it, if we don't acknowledge it, then there won't be the intention to end it. And so this first truth, the, the, the fair fact that we do experience it, and, and the, the embracing of that fact, and the giving attention to our, to our dukkha, very important, an essential first step. And, and through the giving attention to it, through, through giving attention, through embracing, through acceptance of that fact, the Buddha then went on to, to investigate the dukkha. And, and his intention in investigating was to find well, what's the cause of it. Why do I experience this? And, and very easily when we're feeling discomfort, when we're feeling suffering, when we're, feeling, when we're experiencing stress, very easily the tendency is the finger pointing out there, saying, ah, oh, it's because of that. And we point out there, because of the, uh, oh, because of, I can't say it today, but oh, it's because of the rain and the clouds and the cold and the damp. <laughs> or it's because of the, the bad food, or it's because of so-and-so saying this to me, or it's because my mother did this to me when I was two years old. Uh, we have this tendency to point out there and find the cause and say, that's the cause of my dukkha. But the Buddha, the Buddha took a very different approach. And, and the Buddha turned the finger more inward. And not turning the finger inward in the sense of, oh, it's all my fault, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, I was really stupid to do that. And getting into self-judgment and criticism and blame and all that. But, but turning, turning the finger inward, pointing inward, 
and, and seeing that the actual cause of dukkha is from grasping, from holding on to something, holding on to <coughs> objects, holding on to people, <coughs> money, ideas, concepts, beliefs, holding on to anything. The Buddha identified this, this clinging as the cause of dukkha. Whenever we hold on to something, we suffer from it. And, and, and a lot of his teachings were, were aimed at explaining this and, and clarifying this. And, and one, of the, one, of the, um, one of the explanations and clarifications of this, of course, is tied in with, as I've as spoken about last night and a little bit today, is the, the change, how things change, the impermanence of, of things. The things are changing, and if we're trying to hold on to them, we're trying to keep something and keep it the same, but it's changing, then there's friction, there's stress. And so that holding becomes the source of dukkha. <coughs> and since everything is changing, whether we recognize it or not, since everything is changing, the attempt to hold on to anything will inevitably give rise to dukkha. And so this was the second noble truth. The cause of dukkha is in clinging and craving, craving for something, holding on to something in the sense of perhaps something that I don't have yet. I want it, I want it, I want it. The, the craving, the obsession with getting something, the obsession with keeping something. And this is dukkha. A dukkha isn't inherent in the object. It's not inherent in me. It's in that relationship of clinging. And, and by clinging, the Buddha also included the flip side of the coin, which is aversion, pushing away, trying to get rid of, not wanting, avoiding, suppressing. And so the clinging and aversion are the two sides of the same coin. And, and they both come under the second noble truth of the, the cause of dukkha being clinging. And then, in the, in the recognition of the cause, when the Buddha saw that, that clinging, craving and clinging is the cause, he knew that by not clinging, and he knew he came to know from his own actual experience that by not clinging, there's no dukkha. In the complete absence of clinging to anything, there's a complete absence of dukkha. And the complete absence of dukkha is the inner peace, the being at peace with, being at rest with. And so the third noble truth is the ending of dukkha. The third noble truth is, that the, is, is the, the truth, the fact that through understanding dukkha and the cause of dukkha, there can be, and in fact, through the understanding, there will be an ending of dukkha. And 
the fourth noble truth. So the, so the Buddha, the Buddha realized this, and, and, the, and the Buddha was able to declare that that through his understanding he had ended his dukkha. And, and luckily, fortunately for us, the Buddha wasn't still wasn't quite satisfied, <laughs> even though he had ended it all. He wasn't quite satisfied, and and he he reflected reflected on the first three noble truths and reflected on his life and on his meditation experience and he came up with the fourth noble truth and the fourth noble truth is what the Buddha described as the path to the end of Dukkha so the Buddha in the fourth noble truth gives us a path he presents to us a path which we can follow which we can take and which which supports us in coming to the understanding that will end Dukkha. This path is divided into three aspects. He, he called it the Eightfold Path because it has eight parts to it. But it's divided generally into three parts. And those three parts are morality or ethics. So he, 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 he taught how morality, ethics, or the lack thereof, is a factor in our dukkha and the ending of our dukkha. And in the in the, the part of the Eightfold Path on morality, he included speech, action, and livelihood. And so he pointed to speech, our speech, the way we speak, how we speak, what we speak, our actions, and our livelihood as important areas of our lives to give attention to. It's part of the path. I guess, I guess he recognized that livelihood is a major cause of stress. <laughs> and then the second, the second part, the second aspect is morality. And then the second aspect is, is in general what we would refer to, I think, as, as the meditation aspect. And in this, in this, in this part of the path, he included effort. And he included mindfulness. And he included concentration and calmness and steadiness of mind. And so, so this is the, the second aspect. So there's the morality, there's the meditation aspect, and then the third aspect of the path is the wisdom aspect. And this is, this is the, the insight aspect, the understanding. And, and so he starts the, he starts the path in, in this sense, with with the morality, and he says that without without an ethical foundation, without uh, a foundation based on morality, it's very difficult to pro- to proceed on the, on the path because because uh, immorality is such a major cause, such a major factor in dukkha. And so the morality comes first as the foundation. And then there's the meditation aspect. So we do the mindfulness, we practice the mindfulness and, and cultivate the mindfulness and the calmness and, the, and the, the concentration. And then with all that comes the wisdom, the wisdom aspect. And so in that sense, the, the path kind of culminates with the wisdom. And in the wisdom, in the wisdom aspect, he included understanding. 
which he specifically defined as the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And he included intention. And um, an, an interesting uh, a point in this that, that I find very interesting is that when he speaks about the path, he starts with the morality and then the meditation aspect and then the, the wisdom. And, and I think we tend to think that way too. We think, well, okay, we start with the four another uh, the five precepts at the beginning of the retreat. That's, that's the start of the retreat. And then we, we practice. And if we practice hard enough and long enough, then we'll get some insight and get some wisdom. And then, and then we'll be free of our, of our dukkha. And, and in our linear way of thinking, we tend to think that way. But the Buddha, uh, so, so the Buddha taught that way in his teachings. But when he, when he gives the Eightfold Path, it's interesting to note that he actually starts with the wisdom aspect. So the first of the Eightfold Path is the understanding. And the second is intention. And, and I think I think that's important for us all to take note of, and and just just to recognize by the very fact of our having an interest in exploring our dukkha, and the very fact of our interest in being on retreat and doing the meditation is an indication of our wisdom. And to really recognize that and to to, to acknowledge that wisdom in ourselves. It may not always feel like that. Sometimes it may feel like this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> but, but our feelings aren't always right. <laughs> How we feel about something isn't always the way it actually is. So there's the, so there's the understanding, and then there's the intention. And so, so we start with a degree of understanding, and then out of that understanding, the understanding of our dukkha, comes the intention, the intention to end it. So Brad, Brad has spoken a fair amount today about intention, and I spoke a little bit about it, and I'd like to perhaps clarify a little bit what, what we mean by intention and, and what the Buddha meant by intention. It's also interesting in, in the Eightfold Path, and, and when, we, when I speak a little bit more about the meaning of intention, maybe make a little bit more sense. But it's also, also interesting that the intention comes between the wisdom and the morality. And intention is, is kind of like a bridge, I, 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 I feel, between the two aspects. And perhaps you'll see that as I, as I speak about intention. So what did, what did the Buddha say about intention? The Buddha said, um, he, he said, um, intention, what did he say? Oh, I lost the quote. He, he just said, well, it's not in this one, but in, in, in other discourses, he, he de- defines intention as an inclination of the mind. Intention is an inclination of the mind. And in this, in this discourse, he says, and what kind of inclination of mind causes unwholesome states to diminish and wholesome states to increase in one who cultivates it? 
Okay, so what's the inclination of mind? What's the intention that will cause unwholesome states to decline and wholesome states to increase? And then he says, here someone is uncovetousness and abides with his mind free from covetousness. He is without ill will and abides with his mind free from ill will. He is uncruel and abides with his mind free from cruelty. Such inclination of mind causes unwholesome states to diminish and wholesome states to increase in one who cultivates it. So a number of, number of important points. So it always fascinates me how the the, the, the words that the Buddha chooses to use and, and the way that he expresses things there's a real simplicity and a clarity and a, and a directness to it and so this is a, a very short paragraph but a lot of important points and the first is this, the, the use of this word inclination of mind when we when we think of intention, and Brad referred to this, when we when we think of intention, we say, okay, my intention is to do such and such, or my intention is to get such and such, and and intention very easily gets tied in with doing, and it gets tied in with doing in a way that it can become a, a struggle, a real struggle, a real effort. Oh, my intention is to get that, and, and whatever I intend to do, or whatever I intend to get, I can do it. I can get it. And and so when we we have the intention, it becomes an effort to make that happen. But the Buddha describes intention as an inclination. It's an inclination of the mind. And, and, and at least to me, an inclination gives more of a more of a sense of just kind of leaning the mind in that direction. Okay, so the intention isn't the end point. Okay, so when we have the intention to um, we have the intention to be mindful of one whole breath. Okay? It's an inclination towards that. And so if we're only aware of half a breath, it's okay. This sense of inclination has a, a lot of forgiveness in it. A lot of forgiveness in inclination. So we incline the mind towards that which diminishes the unwholesome and increases the wholesome. We incline the mind. We, we set the mind leaning in a direction. If you think of an incline, an incline is a, a slope. Okay, it's a slope. And, and if we think, and I, I, I like to think when I, when I incline the mind to something, I like to think that I'm starting at the top. <laughs> And so the natural tendency is to slow downward. Don't forget, we're starting with wisdom. 
Okay? <laughs> We're starting with wisdom. So wisdom is at the top. We're already at the top. And the inclination is to slow downward. So the inclination isn't so much about effort and trying and doing. It's just setting that that direction. And so if I put something at the top of an incline, it starts to move down. And it moves down without a lot of effort. And of course, as it moves down, there's, there's friction. There's friction between the object that's moving and, and the slope. And so sometimes it might be a little sticky, sometimes a little more sticky, sometimes it's like the gear shift. Sometimes it goes smoothly. And it's like that. We set the intention. And then intention also has a sense of movement towards. And as we move towards that, sometimes it's sticky, sometimes more sticky, sometimes it goes quite smoothly. But the movement is in that direction. And when it when it seems to stick too much, or sometimes it seems like it reverses direction, we've got this place in, in Canada, in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, really, it looks like your car is going backwards uphill while you're driving down the hill. <laughs> Sometimes it looks like we're going backwards uphill. <laughs> and so we just set the reset, the inclination. We reset the inclination. And the, and the movement continues. And so, so we say in, we say in, with the, with the meditation, with, with insight, with, with insight, with understanding, we say you can never go back. Once you begin on the path, you can never go back. Because the inclination, the intention is set. So the, the inclination of mind, and what is the mind inclined towards? The mind is inclined towards three things. It's inclined towards, in, in, this, in this particular discourse, the translation is um, the mind is inclined to uncovetousness. Uncovetousness. In most, of the, uh, in most of the places where he speaks about intention, he speaks of the intention to renunciation. Renunciation, not holding on letting go. This word uncovetousness, that prefix un, without, absence of. I think it's, it's important, and especially when we, when we look at the other, the other two, the other two <coughs> are the intentions to um, 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 without ill will. The intention to be without ill will. And the third one is the intention to be without cruelty. And, and so with all three of them, what he's pointing the intention to is not to a getting of something. It's not inclining the mind towards acquiring something or getting something and all the effort and all the struggle that we put into trying to get. But the inclination is towards being free from, 
ill will and cruelty and covetousness that obsession with getting and having so the 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 intention is is not for layering something more onto us and our lives of getting more but it's an inclination to an intention to kind of strip down so the, the very the very act of intention the very fact of intention is a renunciation intention is a renunciation so an important part of the practice is looking at this area of renunciation. What does it mean to renounce? What does it mean to renounce? And often when we think of renouncing, we think we think in terms of, oh, I have to renounce this. Oh, I have to get rid of it. And I think I have to renounce materialism. So oh, I have to get rid of everything. We do that. Some of us do that at times. They have time to get rid of everything. Sell my house, quit my job, leave my relationship, uh, give away my dog, <laughs> get rid of everything. This is this is my idea of renouncing. And then you give it all away, and the mind is just going, oh, what did I do that for? That was a really dumb thing to do. I should just do that. Oh, I wish I had this and that. And, and, and so, so we, we, we get rid of everything. But is that really renunciation? If the mind is still going on and on and on. The renunciation is that not holding on to. That non-clinging, non-grasping. And and often when we when we recognize where there is a clinging, a holding on, when we recognize that in the letting go, in the the non-grasping, there is a movement away from a, a loss of interest in a loss of the Buddha used the, the phrase he said lose the fascination in the in the renunciation in the non-grasping there's a loss of the fascination and so we may give away things we may get rid of things but it's not coming from oh I have to do this or I should do this this is my big renunciation it's, it's from not holding on, from non-grasping. And as the Buddha pointed out, the grasping is the cause of dukkha. So the inclination is to the ending of dukkha. And again, it's an inclination, an inclination to remove, to bring to an end that, that holding. And then the, the inclination to non-cruelty, to non-ill-will. And we, we certainly see in the world so much ill-will. It seems at the present time in so many places in the world, so much hatred and anger and ill-will towards others. And going back and forth and against each other. And the amount of suffering it causes for for completely innocent people, not to mention the suffering for the people who are 
who are experiencing and manifesting that ill will and that cruelty. And so it's to be free from dukkha requires an inclination to and an ending of this mind of ill will and cruelty. And an important part of the practice is, is looking as we're, as we're sitting, as we're walking, as we're doing the qigong, giving attention to our relationship to ourselves and seeing, what am I holding on to? What am I holding on to that might be worth renouncing? Am I holding on to the way I've done qigong in the past? Or where I've, or where I've given attention to my breath in the past? Or am I holding on to some other retreat center somewhere that um, maybe had the heat come on at the proper times of day and not in the middle of a hot sunny afternoon? <laughs> am I holding on? What, what am I holding on to? <clears throat> am I holding on to an idea of who I am, how I'm supposed to be? Am I holding on to an idea of how this meditation is supposed to be, what I'm supposed to experience, what instructions are supposed to be. <laughs> giving attention to see where, where I'm holding on to something and that holding is causing, is creating some dukkha, some stress, some anxiety, some friction, some conflict. Not between me and someone else, necessarily, but within myself. And giving attention to, to cruelty and ill will. And seeing, as I'm, as, I'm, as I'm sitting here and saying to myself, oh, you're so stupid, what are you doing that for? You should be able to just focus on the breath. Why am I, oh, why am I going off like this? Why am I thinking so much? Is there ill will in that? Is there cruelty in that? And giving attention and, and perhaps, perhaps seeing what can be let go of. Is there anything that can be let go of to at least lessen, if not remove, that attitude? An important part of the practice is, is recognizing where our habits and our tendencies and our preferences are really limiting us where we're defining ourselves by our habits and our tendencies and our preferences. And in that, in that holding on to these and in that defining ourselves by it, really limiting, really limiting who we are or limiting our view of ourselves, sometimes limiting our view of others so easily in the silence form impressions of others. Oh, that person must be like that. That person just sits so quietly and peacefully and still. That person must be really, oh, really close to enlightenment, really close to being a Buddha. And then it just moves all of me with my mind just going... <laughs> and, and we go, well, we can look at someone else and say, oh, that person fusses around so much and makes so much noise. Oh, I can't stand that person. And, and we form these opinions and form these views and, and these ideas about ourselves and others 
and then and so easily they they become a kind of a reality to us. We believe them. We believe them to be true. We don't have a clue if they're true or not. But the mind says them often enough that we believe them. And giving attention and, and seeing where these where ideas and concepts and beliefs and, and past experiences and habits and tendencies are all defining the way we are, who we think we are, who we think others are, what we think of ourselves, what we think of others, and where they're contributing to a lack of freedom. And again, the practice is not to just recognize and say, I have to get rid of that habit, but to recognize the dukkha in it, to see the dukkha in it, to recognize the cause, and then to incline the mind, to incline the mind towards non-ill will, towards non-harming, towards renunciation. And then watch and see where it goes. We can watch, watch the movement of mind, watch the movement in our actions. So giving attention to the intention, checking in with that from time to time, and recognizing that from time to time we have to kind of reset the intention, just to remind ourselves why I'm here, why am I practicing, why am I doing this. Sometimes in, in asking that question it comes up in the form of a dose, why am I doing this? And it's good when that comes up. It's an important question to ask. But if we ask it in that sense, why am I doing this? And just letting it go into grumbling and complaining and you know, just go off to bed, then it's not leading us away from the unwholesome and towards the wholesome. But if we can recognize that doubt when it arises, then just change the question and say, why am I doing this? Why am I here? give it some energy, put it into a positive, and then set the inclination, set the intention, and let the intention carry us along. And certainly, as I, as I said, when we're going down the incline, there's friction. And the friction comes to different degrees at different times, and so at times a certain degree of effort is needed the effort just to, to reset the intention, the effort to bring the attention back, to notice when the mind is just drifting off into useless <laughs> waste of time and energy. And bring the attention back to the body, to notice when we go a beautiful sunny day, oh, walking meditation? Oh, much rather than sit back and have a cup of tea and enjoy the sun. Check the intention. Check the interest. Where's the interest? Where's the energy? Really setting the intention to really make use of this time, this precious, valuable time that we have here. Just a short time, one week. In the beginning it may seem like a long time, and then and it's not even five days. At the end of five days, 
so commonly people come up at the end of my day and say, oh, it feels like it's just beginning. Just beginning. We become aware of that, that movement towards the wholesome and away from the unwholesome. It's good to have that sense of it just beginning, because it's always just beginning. So the intention for renunciation, for non-ill will, for non-harming, and the significance of this also is not just within ourselves, but in the context of our relationship with others. To have that intention as a, as a way of, of coming to really truly recognize and, and know and, and understand and, and manifest an understanding of our interconnectedness, of our relationships to each other, our relationships in life. And to realize how we all affect one another, and none of us live separately. Where the word wholesome is whole, complete. And so the Buddha said, incline the mind away from the unwholesome and towards the wholesome. Inclining the mind towards completeness. So, in the practice, maybe, maybe even at the beginning of each period, the beginning of each sitting period, of each walking period, of each qigong period, check in and see what's my intention for this period. And just set the intention. And not struggle to get anything to see what's being held on to, holding on to struggle, holding on to effort, what's being held on to, and just to see if there can be a, just a movement of letting go of effortlessness, of just being, and in that being, really coming to know the whole Let's sit together quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.